0: Welcome to the first episode of the 2022 Big Read podcast series. I'm Alex Anderson, and I'm thrilled to be the assistant director of this year's programming. Today, I'm joined by three spectacular guests, Deborah Borba, Hugh Laniuk, and Mary Beth Perdomo. Today's episode is entitled Colonial Past, Post Colonial Presence, and we'll be discussing how colonialism and post colonialism function within Silvia Moreno Garcia's novel, Mexican Gothic. First, I'm going to ask our guests to introduce themselves, and then we'll get started with our conversation. Deborah, would you like to get us started with introductions?
1: Sure. Thank you very much. I am a PhD candidate at the School of Language and Cultures. I hold two masters, one from Brazil and one from Purdue University, both in literature. I taught literature courses as well as Portuguese and Spanish as foreign language in Colombia and in the United States. My academic interests are feminism, and literature, gender and genre, multiculturalism, and post-colonial studies. Recently, as a plus of all my academic activities, I am holding Instagram Live during the weekends called Bate Papo Literário, and it is a conversation that I have every weekend, every Sunday specifically, with someone about a specific novel or short story or lyric of a song and always discussing topics related to literature and
0: society. Wow, that's so exciting. Thank you for sharing that with us. Jehu, would you like to introduce yourself?
2: Yes, I'm Jehu. Uh, I'm a graduate student at the Department of Anthropology. My research interest is so broad. But currently, I'm focusing on agricultural developments in the hometown, in the Philippines. So okay. what, what I usually do is anthropology of the hometown, which explores anthropology on a smaller scale as compared to like grander anthropologies of like a specific huge cultures, like for example, different set of people. But I focus more on hometown studies
0: Very cool. There's a lot of specificity about hometowns and specific places in Mexican Gothic. So I'm sure some of that piqued your interest as well.
2: So much. (laughs) Yes, I have a lot to say about it. Oh,
0: good. Well, that's what we like to hear. And last but certainly not least,
3: Mary Beth, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hello, my name is Marybeth Verdomo, and I am a PhD candidate in the English department here at Purdue University. I'm part of the LTC program, which stands for Literature, Theory, and Cultural Studies. And I am a medievalist, so I rarely read American literature if I don't have to. So <laughs> So, yeah, so this is very much outside of my wheelhouse. But I mainly do Arthurian literature, women in medieval romances, Middle English specifically. So if you ever want to pontificate on medieval romances, I am the girl to go to. But otherwise, this is very much a new realm for me. And as I'm teaching this book in my class right now, I'm learning so much about American literature and the Gothic genre as a whole. So it's been a ride. But yeah, thank you for having me, Alex. Of
0: course, I'm thrilled to have all three of you aboard. And listen, Mary Beth, there's some overlap between the medieval romance and the gothic romance. They are not so far as we might like to think at times. In order for our guests to have the most free-flowing conversation possible, we're going to get into some spoilers. So if you have not finished the novel, this is your official spoiler warning. This year's Big Read Kickoff event is a wonderful lecture and Q&A from Dr. Jessica Mercado entitled Five Things to Know About Mexican Gothic. Additionally, Professor Kara Kennelly will be giving a talk entitled Setting the Scene in Mexican Gothic, Society, Culture, and Politics of Early 20th Century Mexico. Both of these talks revolve around the various contexts surrounding Moreno-Garcia's work. So with this interest in context in mind, what exactly are the social, political, and cultural contexts of Mexican Gothic? And perhaps more importantly, how do we see those factors contributing to the text writ
3: large? My students actually brought something up to me this week that I didn't think about, and it's how Noemi, the main character, comes from a privileged background right? as a you know, wealthy woman and how she is also very skilled at navigating conversations between characters, particularly with the Doyles. You see her in the book mentioning often about how at one point she says, I know what it's like to deal with irritating men. <laughs> and so she has, seems like all these like social skills in this little toolbox that she carries with her that she brings to the Doyle house and you see her implementing them. And it seems that the author loves to give her a challenge in the character of Virgil, who sort of seems to meet her uh, match for match. And it was just a very enlightening conversation about how women navigate conversations with men and in new environments. Yeah, it
1: calls my attention because usually we have the component of post-colonial spaces where the strength that represents the colonizer is very higher than the colonized. And here we have the opponent or the the strengths that they are representing are almost equivalent. So I think we have a component of gender that's very strong and will be discussed in the future. But When you think about how prepared Noemi is to talk with the Doyle, she is very well prepared, not just as a person, but as an academic as well, because she studies anthropology. So she read the same articles that he did. She can argue about that and she can make counterpoints about what
0: he is presenting to her. Mary Beth and Deborah, you both bring up an interesting point because I hear both of you are interested in Noemi's kind of social context. That mid-century Mexican in her early 20s in the novel, she's a socialite, definitely. And I think so often in historical fiction, women's social education just like you're saying, Deborah, is sometimes seen as lesser than other different kinds of education. But I think the novel and Noemi's character specifically challenges that supposition because Noemi is not only socially adept, and like Mary Beth is saying, having to navigate these incredibly uncomfortable and at times absurd conversations with irritating men like Virgil and Howard, but she learns to prevail and hold her own. And at times, it's almost like a cat and mouse game for her, especially when she's speaking to Francis. you know, she's kind of she's aware of the fact that she's flirting with him and Frances is not always aware that Noemi is flirting with him. So that's definitely some moments where we can see the social context coming through.
3: Well, Deborah reminded me of this interaction she had with Florence, right, with this idea of like the colonizer and the colonized and the power dynamics between the two. Because, you know, when when, uh, Noemi meets Florence, Florence lays down the lo- laws. these are the rules of the house. These are who you are allowed to interact with and who you are, you know, what rooms you're allowed to go into. And so it was, it's a, very, it was a very interesting moment uh, for Noemi at that time to learn Florence's rules in this house.
0: The domestic context is also incredibly important to Mexican Gothic, especially since Moreno Garcia is playing with that, at times with that haunted house trope, but definitely with the kind of mad woman in the attic trope as well.
2: A couple of moments in the novel talks about a revolution and how they are transitioning or has transitioned after revolution. So one key aspect that I found in the novel is the moments where a focus on silver and the mining has randomly popped up in the novel and how colonialism Technically, it's extraction, like they extract a lot of things. And the image of having silver in the house in a very disturbing haunted house, and how they are living in a wealthy, wealthy household, while those people living outside of it has this fee has this somehow notion of a collective memory of the past about death and how somehow it's unexplained how they died, like the miners died, and how separate the miners are from the family but at the same time they are connected because the death comes from the family because of the because of what they are doing and what they are using and thinking about silver it's also one one thing like for example in the philippines they would the, the spaniards got into the philippines because of aside from spices they're also looking for gold so it also connects to other the grand the grand notion of colonialism, where it is really extraction and how the family somehow creates a narrative of how important the mine is because they want to revive it again. But there is also like a counter narrative of why they shouldn't do it. And I'm just astonished how, even though the setting is in Mexico, I can also apply it to post colonial nations such as the Philippines and how families really, really have a grasp on the political and cultural aspect of the country. So, yeah, it's just astounding. Like the dimension, the use of silver opens up a lot of things in, in the aspect of colonialism and how they are grappling with different outcomes of colonialism. Even, even medicine, for example, is, is changing how, how they use medicine with tuberculosis, for example, in the 1950s. Of course, tuberculosis is a new thing during that time. And there's not a specific cure for it. So that the marker of like tuberculosis and how they are suffering is also a good time indicator for the novel.
3: It's interesting, right, that you're talking about the land and expectation, because that's actually a, another conversation I've been having with my students. And I actually did some cursory research into the Mexican Revolution and it was interesting what I found you know prior to the revolution there was a president who was borderline dictator his name is Diaz and he actually courted European aristocrats to come to Mexico and to take up land and a lot of the indigenous people the natives were essentially these penniless workers that worked on on these lands that you know they were native to and so it's you know so that's what we're seeing right with the doyle family is like they have all these workers and then the way that these workers are treated right like at first it's like oh yeah they were sent home after they died but then it got too expensive so they just dug up a pit and just threw their bodies in there and it's like you know and you know and especially in a in a very you know Catholic heavy area like Mexico, it must be so daunting to know that you don't have a resting place for your loved one because this European family just didn't find it important enough to send them back. So I think it's interesting how the lives of the minors are sort of treated in a very um, transactionary like method, right? So I agree with a lot what you were saying. Yeah,
1: I'd like to add that she uses the Mexican revolution, and it's not necessary to have a lot of knowledge about that to understand how conflictive it was. It is like the foreign people taking advantage of internal conflicts and multiple times internal conflicts being created because of the colonial process and the international interests on that land. And they they use all of this as a very good space to take advantage and to explore even more the poor people on the places. And despite each country Having a particular and peculiar narrative about the colonial process, we can see very similar moments and actions. So what happened in Mexico is similar to what happened in Philippines, to what happened in Brazil. So we have different colonizers, but the process is very similar. And about what Marybeth just mentioned, the miners and the workers, it reminds me one part of the narrative, one paragraph that I really love. Because for me, it summarizes a lot of this colonial discussion that we can have. It is on page 269, and it says, a body, that's what they all were to them, the bodies of the miners in the cemetery. The bodies of women who gave birth to their children and the bodies of those children who were simply the fresh skin of the snake. And there on the bed lay the body that mattered, the father. So I think this citation is great to synthesize all of this colonial process, even with the element of the father as the patriarch and reminds us the patriarchalism that's part of the imperialism and all the colonial process.
0: I think all of your comments are kind of speaking to the fact that there is clear socio-historical context of the novel, but like what Deborah is saying, readers and students don't necessarily need to know every detail about the Mexican Revolution to be able to understand colonial and post-colonial themes throughout the text, right? We can clearly see, just like in that passage that Deborah was pointing to, the importance of patriarchal figures and patriarchy writ large and how those elements function within post-colonial contexts, just in one paragraph. I'm wondering if we can perhaps provide some working definitions. For listeners who are perhaps less familiar with colonial and or post-colonial literature, how would you define or describe colonialism or colonial powers? It's a big question. And additionally, how as a reader or as a scholar do you identify colonial forces in post-colonial texts such as Mexican Gothic?
3: One thing that's stood out to me when I first started reading this book was at the beginning when Noemi comes to the house and she is told we speak English here and Spanish is not allowed. And I think that that has to do a lot with colonial powers ensuring, you know, they define what is permissible and what's not permissible in a given space. So in the house, Noemi is not allowed to speak her language that she's comfortable with. So, having sort of that power over her, I think is part of it. I'm really not sure how to define that. There are different
1: ways to read colonialism, but the main idea, and there is more agreement around it, is when the European empires started to uh, navigate to the new world. And to colonize this world so we can think about 1492 as the beginning of this process and then we have different nations in europe that colonized different countries in the new world in africa north america central america south america and asia so this process of taking those places And imposing then the dominance and the culture and the language and everything else is part of this process of colonization. But it's not so simple because to be able to be over a culture, over a people, it's necessary a complete process of dominance where someone is better and someone is not good so this is this this process and it's used a lot in colonial studies the binary pairs so we have black and white we have civilized and non-civilized, we have good and bad, we have male and female, we have a lot of different pairs and they were very useful in the process of colonization. So one language is good and another one, no. And the only privilege, and it's a construction as well, used by the colonizers, is that they were starting a process of modernization. So they had the ships to navigate, they have the instruments to navigate and to go to the different new continents, and they had a little of more power by the guns that they were using. But it didn't mean that they were better. They just took advantage of these instruments to dominate the people. But to identify criterias of colonization and aspects of colonization in the world and in literature, it's very easy because the process of colonization was so strong and it worked so well for more than 500 years that we can see it in almost everything. So maybe every piece of literature can have one or two elements to discuss colonialism on it.
0: Thank you. Those are some really extraordinary insights. And I think your comment really illuminates just how far-reaching and insidious the technologies of colonialism and neocolonialism can be. Thank you. What a great gloss. I feel like that's going to be so useful.
3: We should definitely talk about that first dinner conversation with Noemi and Howard. And, you know, how he comes right out of the gate and asks her, what are your thoughts on the superior and inferior races? And it's like, I'm just trying to have soup.
1: Yeah, it's a great point, because when I was rereading the novel to find the specifics on colonialism and post-colonialism there, I saw first the conversation that Noemi had with Francis and he said, oh, in our place, we just speak English. I hope you can speak English. And it was great for her because she was educated in English and she took classes since she was six. And we can read it as a colonialism, post-colonial thing, but maybe not. So, it passes. But when we have that first dinner, and Howard starts this conversation, his first comment is, you are darker than Catalina, than your cousin. I I thought, this is the beginning of the tragedy.
3: (laughs) Yes, because colorism is still prevalent. It's still today, especially in Latin America and Caribbean islands. And so it's, I was already starting to get uncomfortable and shifty.
0: Yeah, I think in that moment, Moreno Garcia is kind of testing the limits of her readers, too. I feel like she dangles preliminary comments about, like, well, maybe we should give this character the benefit of the doubt. Like, maybe I'm reading too much into this. Maybe they didn't mean it that way. And then Howard comes out with the, you know, you're a little darker than your cousin. And it's like, yep, I was right. That's exactly what that is. But again, I think that's like a demonstration of how sneaky and how insidious those powers can be and how it's slip in through things like language and control and domestic space and extraction all of these great things that you all are bringing up
3: it seems like howard just has no care whether or not this makes her uncomfortable he wants to have this conversation he wants her ideas about you know on page 30 he mentions this idea of like a cosmic race of all bronze people, which I'm not really sure what that's about. And I don't think I want to know. But a lot of it was just, you know, it's him to say, like, I'm trying to push her and sort of like, really just put all these ideas out.
0: Yeah. And I think you've touched on one of the most prominent colonial
3: technologies in the
0: novel, which is eugenics and kind of using selective reading like the Doyles are interested in to create this cosmic race to create this perfect vision of what they want high place, because that's a a little slice of their world, like how they want society to function. They want it to be their society. They want it to be to follow a certain blueprint. They want it to be made up of people, certain people who look a certain way, just complete erasure of difference.
2: But going around that idea of erasure and eugenics, it also reflects on how A colonial power would maintain itself in a specific country, for example. It would try to maintain itself for 300 years, just like the family did. And in the end, they would crumble in breathing with each other. And maybe they benefit from it during the first 200 years. But over time, the family is having a hard time producing more or transferring to another body because the the genetics is crumbling. Like they are crumbling, just like colonialism did in the past 200, 100, 200 years. It didn't maintain itself. Even though a colonial power tries to maintain itself, it would reach a breaking point where it can't maintain itself anymore, where it would maybe sell itself, sell the colony, for example, sell the Philippines. Spain sold the Philippines to the United States because it can't maintain itself anymore and they cannot fight the revolution anymore. So they sold the Philippines. And that happened during the novel. Like I really felt a little bit of joy when I when I when I felt that they are slowly crumbling. And like the notion of resistance, the idea of using specific substances like smoke, for example, or the use of fire. I was like, Oh, I feel like they're gonna wage a revolution now and they're gonna finish the whole family. And they did. They triumphed. Wow. <laughs> it's like it's like a process of being under a colonial power and then resisting over time because you you had the courage, you found courage by having different modes of resistance, which the main character, Naomi, did she she created a plan on how they would do it.
3: I definitely agree with you there. I would also say that we're seeing resistance even before Noemi enters the pictures with Ruth, right? Because yes, the family was hurting, but then when Ruth came and started shooting people, <laughs> you know, shooting up her own family, that really hurt them. And so we're starting to see even resistance of colonizations even within the the sort of like ranks of the Doyles, which I thought was such an interesting dynamic, right? That, that's, that was there where we're seeing this woman who's like, I'm not going to be part of this family or, you know, let this family continue on. And Noemi, in a lot of ways, seems to be picking up where Ruth left off in that way. But yeah, just like you, I was also really happy when I saw the house burning. But also connecting back to what Deborah was saying, right, about how insidious and prolonging colonization is, right? It definitely breathes life into Francis's fear about his future and about where he stands right? Because he's in the hospital and he has all this concern about like, I'm going to carry this legacy with me. And so what do you do as, you know, someone who's part of that? And so it would be really interesting to get a sequel (laughs) of this novel to see how these characters kind of grapple with that aftermath.
1: It's very interesting to mention this end because we don't need to love the novel completely. For example, I don't like this end. I don't like this idea of Francis remaining and having this kind of romantic end with Noemi. I don't like it. (laughs) I think it's too cliche. (laughs) Oh, spoiler. But the place itself is called high place. They are there in this mountain on the top, and the house is big, is imponent, but it's decaying. It's odd, it's ugly, it's not comfortable. So it once again reminds this idea of colonialism, of a period of glory and then the the descent when the things are not going well. So it's a strong message for the readers and for the process of colonization and how it works. And it has a lot of power, it can cause a lot of damage, but it can be distracted as well. And it can distract itself internally because it doesn't work. But the elements used to, to keep this power are not going to work the same way always. So we have the workers, we have people against this process of domination and power that causes such a destruction. So we have during the narrative, and it's excellent, I really like how Silvia Moreno-Garcia created this environment where we can select so many elements in the narrative to discuss. But at the same time, they are very well articulated, but they are not defined and closed. Most of them are open to discussion. We can see and check and agree or disagree with them. And I think it's great for us as readers and teachers
0: and the people discussing the novel. Yeah, and there is a there is a kind of a contemporary conversation happening in post-colonial studies now where scholars say when we talk about post-colonialism, is that really a truthful word for what we study? For instance, would something like decolonialism be more accurate? Because that kind of denotes we're, we're moving away from colonial powers, but can we ever actually be rid of them, like is the idea of a post-colonial space a utopia in a way? And I think, yes, this novel ends with this purgatorial gothic fire, and it is perhaps heartwarming and optimistic and comforting in some ways to imagine that this ending is kind of a perfect post-colonial ending. However, I think that that picture-perfect ending, that cliche ending, right, that Deborah is saying, is complicated by the fact that when Noemi and Francis are kind of recovering in the hospital, they have that conversation where Francis says, will I ever actually be rid of this thing inside me? Are the spores going to return? Will I one day be harmful to you? And there is kind of that impossible knowledge of whether or not that's going to come back and if it does resurface how is it going to be stronger is it going to be nuanced is it going to be more dangerous even so I wonder if maybe that's one of the things that readers are supposed to think about at the end of this novel
3: I think one of the things that sounds like what's getting at right is like colonization takes many different forms and Maybe Francis doesn't have this house or the mushrooms anymore, but who knows what it can transform itself into later on and how that power comes back. So, yeah, the ending definitely felt unfinished. That feels like the beginning to another story or, you know, something along those lines.
2: But isn't in a way if, for example, a colonial power would stop, would self-destruct itself or would end in a specific country? the story of those people living on the lower part of the village for example what are their narratives after after the house burned what would their situation be maybe it's an open ended ending for that reason because what would happen would they prosper or would they grapple with a lot of outcomes of the presence of the family for the longest time because in colonialism it lingers like post colonial nations still has problems from colonialism and that's the interesting part like what would happen in the novel next time if there's a second part of the novel where does the perspective comes in what point of view would come into the next novel throughout the novel i think everything focused on the house but there are moments where noemi would go down even though there are restrictions but the narratives of the people it's really not thoroughly explored So if they're thinking about what would happen next. I mean, I want to know more about the people who live
0: in the village in the novel that we have. Because we get insights into two characters who live permanently in El Triunfo. So we have like those two examples, but we don't really have access to any of the other characters' lives. And part of that is by design, because how could Noemi have access to those people she is effectively a prisoner of High Place. Anytime she goes down to the village, it is only because Francis acts as a steward, literally, for her. But I'm wondering, too, if that omission is supposed to strategically prompt readers to wonder about the people who live in El Triumfo, or if we are supposed to interpret that omission as ghosts. Like, is that kind of the unspoken haunting of this novel? Are we supposed to always be picturing high place with ghosts of the minors in the background? Are we supposed to be picturing grieving families in El Triunfo? I mean, that's just something that I consistently think about when I revisit this text.
3: I mean, Dr. Camarillo even mentioned, right, that everyone in that town had been affected in some way by the Doyles. So there's definitely a collective trauma that exists in that town. Even, even if the Doyles are gone now, el triunfo will never really be the same somebody said right that a lot of people left the town so you're sort of seeing one of the effects i think of colonization which is where the land becomes uninhabitable and so people are forced to migrate you know being forced to move to go someplace where you can find resources and so i think that that's a really good idea of thinking about it as ghosts because it's you know it's becoming a ghost town
1: that's a great point as well. I had a thought about these two locals that appear in the narrative, the doctor and Marta Durval. That's kind of, a, she's not a doctor, she's not a medical doctor, but she treats people with some potions and medicines that she prepares. So she represents like the indigenous people, maybe, We don't have a discussion about her ethnicity, but probably she represents the native people from uh, Mexico. But even the name of the place, El Triunfo, is ambiguous because it can be irony, like triunfo for who or what or when, because actually they all have this trauma and they all receive the effects of the family living there and exploring that place. But at the same time, after the action of Noemi and Catalina in the house, because we can't forget that Catalina took the action. She is who put the fire. After the action of them, they have this triumph. So El Triunfo has a proper name because finally they are free. But it's a great question, like what is going to happen next? But the focus on the characters, well, it's always an election. The author can't narrate the history of every single character in the story. So elections are made, and for an election, there is an exclusion. And unfortunately, at this narrative, to be authentic, gothic, we can't focus on the people in El Triunfo. It's necessary to focus on the house and what is happening inside that place. So that's a consequence of the style and the selections made by the author. But it's a great question. If we think about the process of colonization, what is going to happen next? What's happening after this trauma? And it's great, this idea of them as ghosts, because it's a very proper metaphor and comparison to be used.
3: And I also think it's interesting too, because we talked earlier about how Noemi goes into town to sort of get away from the Doyles. But I don't know if you guys had the same ideas that I did when you guys were reading it. It felt like a ghost town and it felt like a direct result of the Doyles. So even when she's trying to get away from them, she can't really, at least not there. Their influence, their power is sort of all consuming. That's a really big part of colonialism, right? Is making sure that the power of the oppressor is always present and it's always pushing you down. So I think that that was a that's a really interesting moment when Noemi is just trying to go into town and see the place and she finds it almost deserted or very few people around.
0: Well, speaking of the ultimate question, what happens next? I'm curious as to what you all think about the closing pages of the novel. And if I may, I'd like to draw your attention to one passage in particular in the middle of page 300. This is when Francis and Noemi are in the hospital and Noemi says, we'll stay together. She said firmly, we'll stay together and you won't be alone. I can promise you that. And Francis asks, how can you make such a promise? She whispered that the city was wonderful and bright, and there were areas of it where buildings were rising up fresh and new, places that had been open fields and held no secret histories. There were other cities, too, where the sun could scorch out the land and bring color to his cheeks. They could live by the sea in a building with large windows and no curtains. Spinning fairy tales, Francis murmured, but he embraced her. And especially in a conversation about colonialism and post-colonialism, I am so struck by this image of new cities, places that had been open fields and held no secret histories. What are we supposed to make of this idea of spaces and places that hold no secret histories? Is this supposed to imply that as long as the dirty laundry is aired out, as long as we don't let colonialism stay an insidious power as long as we call it what it is, that it will no longer be threatening? Is that possible? Do places without secret histories exist? Or is this actually a fairy tale that Francis accuses Noemi of
3: spinning? This line here is interesting, especially when we think about the Gothic genre. You know, what makes it a Gothic genre is is all the hidden things around that place, all the hidden secrets in that place. And so it's really interesting how we're seeing the genre of Gothic literature and post colonialism kind of come together. But this is definitely, I would say, wishful thinking on Noemi's part as, you know, trying to find some place that is sort of free from this burden of bloodshed and hostilities towards others and can such a place like that really exist is there such a place that is free from harming others and i don't know of the answer to that but it does sound like this is noemi's wish that they find that sort of eden paradise if you will
1: for me it sounds in two ways first in the narrative the idea of a, a topic place a paradise, a place where no harm can be done. And if we think about the colonial process and the decolonial idea as well, it is, once again, this utopia, a place that's peaceful, a place that's good, but at the same time, it must be constructed because the place does not exist. And she mentioned the idea of different cities. So, Maybe this idea of search, of migration, and maybe a new place for Frances, because she is in her land and she belongs to that place. Who is not uh, belonging, at least naturally thinking, if you think about the language and the culture and everything, is Doyle family. They tried to recreate England and Mexico but she wants to show him all the natural aspects of Mexico. So I think there is different possibilities.
2: And I'm thinking with the mention of buildings, like if they're extracting metals in the mines and they're, they're talking about open fields, like places that have been open fields, maybe, you know, when you extract something, you put it on a different place and you build cities from it. You build You build buildings. So in my head, it's also the process of colonialism where they would extract something and they would bring it to, they would use it in another place.
0: And I wonder too, if here we're supposed to
2: maybe be generous
0: with Noemi's notion of like rebuilding or building anew. And maybe she's also talking about the kind of relationship building. In a positive reading of this ending, maybe this is Noemi offering a kind of sustainable post-colonial model for Rebuilding. Maybe it's a relational rebuilding. Maybe it's also an act of forgiveness. I mean, there's certainly a version of this novel that could have ended where Noemi would have absolutely despised Francis solely because of his connection from the Doyles, but that's not the case here.
3: Yeah. And now, actually, that I'm sitting here and thinking about it, because, right, because the next line she was the one about talking about Catalina was the one who made up stories. It reminds me, right, earlier in the novel. She always talks about all these stories that she grew up hearing with Catalina. And so I'm wondering if this is more of a part of like some sort of self-soothing, self-healing for Noemi as well of sort of going back to those stories that made her feel like everything was okay. That sort of, you know, sort of starting this process of recovering from this traumatic experience. And maybe it's not realistic, but maybe this is what she needs right now in this moment is to believe in this and she needs Francis to believe in this in order for them to sort of move forward however they move forward. So I'm wondering if that's sort of something there in dealing with trauma and colonialism.
0: Yeah, I think that's a cool comparison too because almost like recovery from a traumatic experience, a decolonial process may not necessarily be a straight line. It might not follow a blueprint that perhaps more like utopic post-colonial scholars would advocate for. It can be messy and it it might not be a straightforward journey.
1: One more comment about the characters in general. They are not plain. They are all with a tendency to be round. And I think Noemi is very strong and Her character, like her personality since the beginning helps to develop what she's doing during the the development of the narrative. But everything is possible because of the interaction that she had with Francis. So I think Francis is a key element for this narrative because she needed him. He didn't have the power or the strength to create a change in his family, but he knew that the things were not good. And then her presence in the house and the connection between them caused this change. So maybe we can think about decolonization as a process that can't be by one element, but it is necessary to combine different elements to be a a reality.
3: Speaking of Francis, it actually reminds me of a of something that my students were said that I thought was interesting, which is this idea of Noemi having an ally in the home, and even though, like you said, he doesn't have much power, right? He's always described as sort of a weakling and pale, especially you know in contrast to Virgil, right? He's always like the weaker member. It's still important for both of them to have allyship with each other, particularly if we think about like the gothic genre where women are tend-, tend to be alone or main characters tend to be by themselves and sort of alone fighting with this like external supernatural haunting force that's coming in. So it's definitely a really interesting dynamic that we're seeing between the two of them. And Francis is the one that explains, you know certain things to Noemi that is important for her, right? Because after he explains what the gloom is and why it's important, suddenly now she's paying attention when those things happen. The notion of
0: allyship is interesting when considering the partnership between Noemi and Francis. And even though there are moments where Noemi does face Gothic elements and she is alone, like I'm thinking specifically about the dreams that she has, and they're genuinely frightening to her. I mean, as strong and as vivacious a character as she is, she might not be afraid for very long. She very quickly talks herself out of that fear. But she, I mean, I think that her uneasiness is genuine in those moments. But you're right, Mary Beth. I mean, she, I think she is comforted by Francis. And even when he fumbles a little bit with his birds, and even when he is not what we would typically think of as perhaps the, the Gothic hero, um, even like his brand of Maybe what we could talk about is decolonial masculinity is comforting to her because he supports her and he takes care of her and he makes resources available to her when perhaps they would not be without his presence. But that all of that help is rooted in allyship.
3: Exactly. My students have fondly started calling him the mushroom boy. Uh, Oh,
0: the mushroom boy. That's very
3: cute. (laughs) Because they love that he goes into the cemetery and just picks up mushrooms and- I still cannot I don't know what to do with that line that Noemi brings out about how do you feel about using or eating mushrooms that groove in the same ground that there are dead bodies and it's like what are you supposed to do with that kind of comment that's pretty metal though
0: maybe Francis is the metal mushroom man for the sake of alliteration
3: I'll workshop it with them (laughs) great yes please let us know what they have to say about it
2: The image of Ouroboros in the novel is also interesting. Like as it represents its destruction and recreation, the family was really spreading destruction in El Triunfo. But Francis and Naomi recreated themselves after the novel in some sense, and they got out of the snake eating its own tail, or maybe they created their own. We don't know. But it's interesting. Like the men- the family seal is Ouroboros. It's all around the house.
3: I was looking it up and one of the symbols it represents, right, is resurrection, which we, you know, automatically would think of like Howard, right, as he like continuously resurrects himself. But you just actually said something that about Noemi and Francis about their process of resurrection as well, right? You know, we can think about the biblical healing of the fire of high place as a as a cleansing moment for them as well. And sort of like thinking about, well, would they be able to take a symbol like that and turn it around into something good, right? Where we see in that decolonization process, or can it just continue right down a certain pathway? And again, answers are up in the air because we don't really know, but it's an interesting thought to think about.
0: And with that symbol as well, the danger of the cycle is ever present, Physically, because it is the family seal, but also it's like a mentality that's ingrained in descendants of the Doyle family, too.
3: And since Francis is still alive, I mean, (laughs) that lineage could continue on with him.
0: I know. That concludes our conversation for today. Thank you so much to our fabulous guests, Deborah, Jehu, and Mary Beth. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you about this fantastic novel, and I know our listeners will be interested in your insights. Additionally, for the folks at home, if you'd like more information about the Big Read, please visit the Big Read section of the Purdue English Department's website, where we have a fantastic archive of materials about previous Big Read selections, as well as a phenomenal lineup of events for this fall's programming. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, this is Alex Anderson with the Big Read Podcast.